0: Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's b r i o n Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free Audiobook of the same title read by yours. Truly, support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. You also can purchase classes there, one or 20. Keep this podcast free of charge. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the Super Thanks button under the video. You can throw a few pennies my way. Click on the Support tab at brianmclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. Or you can go to anchor.fm, subscribe there. Become a member at Anchor.fm. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. All these things keep the podcast free of charge. But Clanehan Academy is the best because you get great content for it in addition to the podcast. Also, click on the Shop tab at BrianMcClanehan.com. Get my logo and all all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share it around on social media. Let your friends know this is a great podcast. And you'll love it. And then they'll love it too. And send me those show requests if you want to hear something. This is actually a listener-generated episode uh, from a, a, a long-time listener, someone that um, sends me material every now and then. And it's a topic I've talked about before, but there was a very long expose on the Claremont Institute in the New York Times. And as I've said before, I subscribe to the New York Times, so you don't have to. But um, and, but somebody sent this to me. I hadn't read it yet. But um, I sat down and read the, read the piece, and... I found it fascinating. Uh, First of all, the Claremont Institute is getting a lot of publicity because of its association with with Donald Trump, right? The Trump administration. Of course, Michael Anton was in the Trump administration. He wrote the Flight 93 election book. and uh, He's become very much of a darling on the conservative circuit. And everyone knows, if you've listened to the show for some time, Anton and I had it out in Chronicles Magazine last year about the meaning of American conservatism in some ways. Now, all of the Claremonters, for the most part, are very much opposed to the Southern tradition. They think it's the antithesis of America. They really do. I mean, this is, this is the basis of their political philosophy. The Southern tradition is the antithesis of America. Anton himself has spelled this out very clearly when he tries to persuade conservatives to distance themselves from John C. Calhoun because Calhoun is somehow anti-American. Now, the Bob Elder book, Calhoun, which is titled American Heretic, right that's the original title, American Heretic, does essentially say that Calhoun is certainly American, but he is considered to be heretical, that there is something about Calhoun that's heretical in American society, that he wasn't really American, he was something else. And I think all of this goes back to the 1850s republican party this is why the next class at McClanahan academy is focused on those individuals the republicans from the 1850s and 60s to give you an idea in one very important speech which everyone knows about but nobody really ever reads because it's 95 pages and that's charles sumner's crimes against kansas speech because in that speech charles sumner very clearly lays out what he's trying to do which is essentially foist New England on the rest of America. And essentially what Claremont is doing is foisting New England on the rest of America. They want to live in a New England society. And their entire, their entire basis is ideology. Now, tomorrow I'm going to talk about Yoram uh, Mazzoni's book, Conservatism. And uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to focus on his bad history but essentially, the, the core, the problem I have with Claremont is not, not some of the stuff they talk about, because I agree with some of the things they say about public policy and, and uh, where they're going with things in America. I agree with that, right? I agree that they, they, are, they are right on many issues. The problem I have with the Claremonters and, of course, Hazzoni and all these American nationalists, because that's what they are, is that American nationalism is the antithesis of the American tradition. American nationalism is not conservatism. It was it was a reaction to real American conservatism, which was decentralization. And I'll get into Hazoni's book and how he gets so many things wrong about the history of the Constitution tomorrow. And that's, that's just embarrassing. It's embarrassingly bad. But for the Straussians, for the Claremonters, the West Coast Straussians, they don't like it when I call them neoconservatives because uh, that's... The, the neoconservatives don't like them, uh, but look—the West Coast Straussians and East Coast Straussians and the neoconservatives are all blood brothers, and they're all blood brothers because at their core they have one basic tenet that matters, and they share this with the left, and that's something that's interesting about this New York Times piece because it actually the author actually brings this out a little bit. But there was some overtures to work with the left; they share the belief in the proposition nation. If you start from that point. Everything you do from there, if you call yourself a conservative, is going to be destroyed. Because you know who is more in line with the Proposition Nation, the American left. Now, this is where, of course, they all rely on Hamilton and uh, Lincoln, of course. But you see, Lincoln believed he was more of a Jeffersonian than anything. If you go back and read Lincoln, yes, he was a Henry Clay guy. But Henry Clay also considered himself to be a Jeffersonian. Henry Clay was not a Hamiltonian in any way, at least except for his economic policies. If you read um, Michael Holt's book on the American Whig Party, it's really good. It's like a billion pages. That's more like 900, I think, something like that. But he brings this out. Look, the American Whigs, for the most part, were not directly descended from the Federalists. If you look at now, some of them were like Daniel Webster. This is a big umbrella, right? So it's a big group of people. But when you look at the the real legislative leaders of the Whig Party, and the most important being Henry Clay, Henry Clay always considered himself to be a national Republican. Essentially, what they did is they took Jeffersonianism and fused it with Hamiltonian economics and created this this, this American Whig Party. The first American Whigs were opposed to consolidated, centralized power, and most importantly, strong executive authority with Andrew Jackson. Those were the first American Whigs. And the Whigs, for years, blasted strong executive power. When John Tyler becomes president, they do the exact same thing because they think Tyler is being excessive in his, in his abuse of executive power. But Tyler, as I've argued many, many times, was vetoing bad legislation, which is what the president is supposed to do, is vetoing nationalist legislation that was unconstitutional. right? So he was actually being a real... Whig in the truest sense of opposing bad government. So when you look at the Whigs, they're not uh, they're not the Federalist continuation. And Lincoln followed Clay's footsteps, his eulogy on Henry Clay. I talk about this in reading Abraham Lincoln. I go through that eulogy of Henry Clay. Uh, his insistence in 1838, the Lyceum address, which is one of the most important speeches Lincoln made. It's one of his earliest speeches where he says we need to have a civic religion and the Constitution, but more importantly, the Declaration really need to be our Scripture, right? This is where Pauline Meyer calls them American Scripture, at least the Declaration American Scripture. She wasn't far off from that. And if you look at the Republican Party of the 1850s, they start considering the Declaration to be their American Scripture. This is their Bible. This is their political Bible, the Declaration. This is exactly what the Claremont people do. Now Anton, uh, the the wording of something I read, something I wrote in, in blasting Anton was, um, uh, he was he picked up on this. The editing got was was bad in it. It wasn't. It came out not the way I intended it. The declaration is important, but not the the line that everyone focuses on, which is the first line of the second paragraph. The declaration is important for the last paragraph, which is uh, where the where Jefferson and the ambassadors to the Continental Congress declared themselves to be free and independent states. And when I get to Tamar Tozzoni, he recognizes this, right? We had a very decentralized federal republic at that particular point. His point is that the Constitution changed all that, which it didn't. That's his bad history. But you see, Lincoln was a nationalist. He was a nationalist. He believed in a nation, American nation-state, He didn't really believe in the powers of the states. Um, He did say that, of course, on the issue of slavery, that the uh, the, uh, states could, I mean, central government had no authority over this. The states could do whatever they wanted there. He was simply opposed to the expansion of slavery in the Western territories because he thought the federal government had power to do that. And, of course, this was a disputable position. You had certainly people in the founding generation that believed they could, and certainly people that believed they couldn't. Right? It came down to to essentially a Tenth Amendment issue after the Tenth Amendment is added to the Constitution. So here we have uh, a, a a continuation, not from Hamilton to Lincoln, but from Jefferson to Lincoln. Lincoln always considered himself a Jeffersonian, and what's interesting is Herbert Storing, who wrote, uh, who edited the Anti-Federalist Papers, made the same claim. Right? Lincoln was a Jeffersonian, not a Hamiltonian. Now, we can dispute that. We can say, was Lincoln more in line with Hamilton than Jefferson? Lincoln's a nationalist. Jefferson was not a nationalist. This is where that Drew McCoy book, um, The Elusive Republic, comes into play because essentially McCoy makes the case that Hamilton, I'm sorry, uh, Jefferson and Madison were both really nationalists. And Madison never really changed his stripes. Uh, But regardless all of these things are difficult issues to wrestle with, right? Were these people nationalists? Were they not nationalists? But what I have to emphasize in all this is that nationalism was gumming up the works. Nationalism was the innovation that was destroying real American conservatism over and over and over again. American conservatism at its core is federal. And what I mean by that is decentralized. You believe... That we have separate peoples in America. We actually have a diverse United States, and these separate regions and interests can govern themselves and their own local concerns as long as we have a common cause when it comes to commerce, international commerce, most importantly, and defense. We defend each other from foreign attack to keep the states free and independent. We ensure that our commerce is kept free and open between the states so we can all make money and be prosperous and, of course, have a unified voice when dealing with foreign powers because we want to be able to do that. But this is why George Mason wanted a prohibition on navigation laws because he thought those would be disastrous. And he was right. This is tariffs, essentially. So we want to have a unified voice in these things, but the, the idea is that the states handled everything else everything else. And, of course, the states had their own constitutions, their own Bill of Rights, all of these things. The Claremont people work at their basis from Lincoln. And they say that Lincoln is their guy because Harry Jaffa was the founder, essentially, of Claremontism. You could say Leo Strauss, but then Jaffa is a Straussian, and Jaffa is the guy that all of the Claremonters Look to and read, and I think you know, put right next to the Bible and read them both and try to find you know, evidence of the Bible with, with Harry Jaffa. I mean, I really believe this stuff. Uh, maybe they sprinkle holy water on Jaffa's you know, books and then also on uh, Lincoln, a little on Lincoln too, and then they genuflect and do a sign of the cross. They do these things with all of these, uh, with all these Lincolnians, uh, all these Lincolnian symbols. But I want to read the last part of this New York Times piece because it's very important. It's very important because of what is said here. And the pieces, it would take me an hour itself just to read the entire piece. It's, it's a very long summary of Claremont. And again, I don't have a problem with Claremont and what they do with a lot of their policy positions. right? I would agree with that. I agree with a lot of things that they say. My problem is that if you're going to base American conservatism on Lincoln, you've already lost. Because at the end of the day, the other side is going to very easily say, and they do this. This is why I've said the Claremont people in the 1619 Project are two sides of the same coin. If you believe in the Proposition Nation, which the Claremont people do, then you are a false prophet. Because if you believe in that, then you're really Charles Sumner. And the only way you can have the Proposition Nation is to make everyone equal across the board. And that term equal, then, is up to interpretation leftists are going to use it in a way that is going they're going to run with it it's economic equality it's political equality it's social equality it's every type of it's it's basically communism it's what they want to it's what they want to emphasize and you know what are they incorrect about that we can say well that's not what jefferson meant and their answer is who cares that word equality is what it means now this is what it means now and you can't stop where equal you can't determine where equality ends we can't our de- definition of equality, it's why Nicole Hannah-Jones said, and I think, again, if you believe in the Proposition Nation, she's actually correct about this. If she says, well, the problem is that we've got this U.S. flag and it's never lived up to its promise of equality. And it's always we've, there's always been people in America left behind because we've never lived up to equality. And so, you know what we have to keep doing? Using government to institute equality. Her father flying the U.S. flag and saying it's a great flag. She says, well, I don't know about that because it's never lived up to its promise. And that promise is the proposition, right? If you believe in the proposition nation, then you have to be a 1619er rather than a conservative. You have to be. It's, it's, at, at its core, this is what you have to do, okay? And this is where the Claremont people miss all this stuff. And so this is why these things are important, if you really want American conservatism, which Russell Kirk pointed out, and I'm, again, I'm going to talk about this as only tomorrow. If you really want American conservatism, you have to include John C. Calhoun. You have to include the Southern critique of American society. You have to include it. If you do not, you are simply basing your conservatism on 19th century liberalism, and that's not conservative. Ninth, middle of the 19th century, Republican Party liberalism. It's Thad Stevens, it's Charles Sumner, it's Abraham Lincoln, it's all these people that no one would say in 1855, 1856, 1861 are conservatives. No one would have claimed Abraham Lincoln was a conservative. Not one person. No one would have claimed, I mean, been sane that Charles Sumner was anything but a wacky leftist because even in Massachusetts, he was recognized as that by a pretty strong faction of of people in Massachusetts. This guy was a nut. Same thing with Thad Stevens. Same thing with all these people. They were nuts. They were the wacky leftists of the 19th century. So what we've done is just what R.L. Dabney said we were doing in America is American conservatism is simply just discarded leftism, and we just adopt those positions. And this is why the Straussians and all the Claremonters really aren't that conservative if they're basing it on Lincoln. At the end of the day, they're not conservatives. They are 19th century liberals masquerading as modern American conservatives. If you want to find real American conservatives, you got to go back before that. you got to go to... I mean, Calhoun's greatest statement... This is a beautiful statement. Calhoun said... And this is where... I mean, where the uh, these, these Strausians I find it funny when they say Calhoun really was an American conservative. He really wasn't any of this. Calhoun said it himself... I am a conservative, and because I am a conservative, I am a state's rights man. That's his direct line. Now, I've got a speech that I gave at the Abbeville Institute uh, Summer School coming out um, on that, uh, where uh, I I make this point. I mean, I read that part of that Calhoun speech. It's also in reading John C. Calhoun. Uh, If you take that class at uh, at, uh, McLanehan Academy, I'm reading John C. Calhoun. I go over it there, too. Um, There's much of other things I do with Calhoun there, but you have to understand Calhoun if you want to understand American conservatism. So, I've been setting this up. Let me read some of this piece. And um, it says, Harry Jaffa died in January 2015 at 96 and didn't live to witness the rise of Donald Trump. An emotional debate has ensued as to how Jaffa, who continued to write and argue well into his 80s, might have reacted to the events of the last few years. This spring, one of Jaffa's sons, Philip, who is 70, emailed me. He is adamant that the Claremont Institute has turned against his father's teachings. He cited an essay by Christopher Caldwell about Robert E. Lee that the Claremont Review ran last spring, which called Lee, quote, the moral force of half the nation. Now, this is interesting because here is Philip Jaffa, Harry Jaffa's son, saying... Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, this is... Jaffa would not have liked Robert Lee. He's right about that. Look, Jaffa was a Lincolnian. Jaffa thought... He was like Alan Gelzo I mean, South bad, right? I mean, really. At the end of the day. Now, Jaffa and Bradford, Mel Bradford had this long, you know, ongoing debate about these things where Jaffa came up with this wacky idea that somehow uh, equality is conservative. And this is where Bradford just took him to task. And Jaffa really had no response. In in my I mean Jaffa's response is milk toast. It's ridiculous. B- Jaffa did support Mel Bradford for his uh, for his appointment to the Reagan administration, while all the other uh, all the other neocons and Straussians ditched, uh, jumped on Bradford and said he can't do it. And of course, Reagan withdrew the nomination or the potential nomination. Jaffa did support Bradford, uh, but I mean here's the thing. I don't think Jaffa would have supported any position that had Robert E. Lee as somewhat of a conservative, but Lee was conservative. <laughs> Lee was the whole Lee family was conservative. If you follow Hazzoni's idea that the Federalists were all American conservatives, that's what Lee was. He was a Federalist. His father was a, his father was Washington's right hand man. His father was beaten up by Jeffersonians, uh, and then had to go and convalesce somewhere just to try to regain his health after he was almost killed. So Lee would have represented everything about American conservatism. And he sided with Virginia. But you see, he's not a Lincolnian. He's not that kind of conservative. He's not one of these 19th century Republicans, which doesn't make him a conservative. This is just lunacy. It's lunacy. And this is where I will give uh, the Claremont Institute credit. They, they, I think Anton actually pointed this out somewhere. Well, we did run this piece on Robert E. Lee, that was very complimentary of Lee okay that's good now go all the way right ditch Lincoln and you've got it you've got it if you if the Claremont people would duck just ditch Jaffa and Lincoln they would they would get it they would be on they would be on it right but they won't do it because they can't because they know that if they don't this is where you know the piece talks about how limited Claremont has been and and uh, they figured out that well, if we're Lincoln, you know, Lincoln, we have Lincoln scholars. We're Lincoln. Uh, we, we're, we're Declaration, we're Proposition Nation. All this people won't be as uh, suspicious about them, uh, you know. Whereas you know, something like the Bill Institute uh, is well, because it's pro-Southern, Southern tradition. Well, that's that's the antithesis of really good America. That's not good America. Uh, good America is something else. Good America is. Um, is Lincoln and I mean, we've seen it over and over again if you bash Lincoln you're never a good American Philip noted that this directly contradicted his father's teachings to say that Lee represented the moral force, force of half a nation I have come to watch the Claremont Institute embody the very thing that my father criticized in the conservative movement Philip Jaffa told me when I spoke with him this is entirely correct I think Philip Jaffa is more in line with what Claremont really was and who Harry Jaffa was than the people at Claremont. But see, they're hanging on to Lee, uh, sorry they're hanging on to Lincoln. they're hanging on to Lincoln and they shouldn't. If they could ditch that, they would be on to something. Some of the most pointed criticisms of Claremont's recent prominence have come from scholars of similar backgrounds quote: I think there's a story here about the insularity of the conservative world, says Laura Field, a political philosopher and scholar in residence at American University, who has published several sharp critiques of Claremont over the last year in The Bulwark, a publication started by Never Trump Conservatives. Claremont has been, quote, pretty much unchallenged by broader academia, Field told me, as many academics, liberals, but also other conservatives, tend to consider political engagement in general, and Claremont ideas and public manners in particular beneath them. That's an important line. You see, anybody that's out there doing real work, that's beneath us. I don't want to comment on Claremont, that's beneath us. Or you could say the Abbey, I don't want to comment on the Abbeville Institute, that's beneath us. These people aren't, uh, these people aren't real scholars. They're not academics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I mean this is where Claremont always operated on the fringes for years. Of course, you've got Hillsdale College, which, you know, it's I mean, it's Straussian, 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 except for a few good people there. There are some good people at Hillsdale. But, um, you know, Larry Arne is a Straussian of the Straussians. He is a Jaffaite of the Jaffaites. In contrast, Claremont scholars understand the power of a certain kind of approach to politics that's sensational, she said. Field pointed me to a recent exception, a small panel discussion in July in in Washington, in which Kessler took part. Kessler defended the upsurge of populism as pro-constitutional. And so, he said, even though it takes an angry form in many cases, it was difficult to condemn it as simply an eruption of democratic irrationalism. Brian Garston, a political scientist at Yale, responded that it was very generous to interpret the current populism as, quote, erupting in favor of an older understanding of constitutionalism. But even if that was partly true, he questioned whether populism could be, quote, expected to generate a new appreciation for constitutionalism or whether it wouldn't do just the reverse. It is, Garston said, a dangerous game to try to ride the tiger. Well, isn't this what leftists did for years? I mean, mean, this is what all this... uh, Bloviating about democracy is right. I mean, this. Then they talk about, of course, uh, Claremont's budget, which has gone up quite a lot. Uh, and then I want to get down to this part where they, she brings up Jaffa. She says, Harry Jaffa used to ask what it was that American conservatism was conserving. The answer was generally ideological. American conservatism is not about preserving a social structure as in the old European societies. But rather, the American idea—a set of principles laid out in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Now, that's an important statement because if you are conserving an idea, you're not a conservative. Again, conservatism is about traditions. It's it's actually reactionary, right? Conservatism, in so many ways, is a. Is, I mean, look, it's reactionary. It's. Um, it is reacting to the ideas of the other side, to the innovations of the other side that forces you to act. It's reactionary to that. Um, so there is a set of be- principles behind it. It's not ideas; it's principles based on custom and precedent and tradition that force you to react to the other side. And this culture, these traditionals, these traditional things out of culture, right? This is this is what forms the principles behind the reaction to the ideology. If you say American conservatism is an ideological institution, then it's no different from the left. Ideology is bad. Ideology is, at its core, reform-minded and leftist. And if you're basing, again, on the idea, the nation of the Declaration, this is exactly what the piece says, then you're doomed. What appears unsettled at Claremont is the, quote, foggy question of whether or not a republic is too far gone to be conserved. And this is what William Vogeli, the senior editor, wrote in the spring issue. Quote, what would be the bigger mistake to keep fighting to preserve a republic that turns out to be beyond uh, resuscitation or to give up defending one whose vigor might be yet restored? So he comes down to the side of the central conservative impulse, which is that because valuable things are easy to break but hard to replace, Every effort should be made to conserve them while they can be conserved. But he acknowledged that some of his younger colleagues appear ready to quote, to, quote, abandon conservatism for a counter-revolution in order to reestablish America's founding principles. Kessler was sanguine. We need a kind of revival of the spirit of constitutionalism, which will then have to be fought out through laws and lawsuits and all the normal daily give and take of politics, he said. That's what I'm in favor of, and it's moving in that right, in the right direction. So, uh, younger conservatives are, are to abandon conservatism. Well, they're, not, they're not abandoning conservatism. They're abandoning ideology, ideology I mean, which is what Claremont doesn't get. Right? They're abandoning ideology in favor of traditions and trying to settle this in the courts or in other ways. Right? Voting people out, getting the right people in who have the right traditions for your society. Tom Merrill of American University also studied Jaffa's work and believes there is much in his teachings to appeal to both liberals and conservatives. Uh Aha! Yes, in fact, more liberals than conservatives, because Merrill is actually correct about this. I think the country is so divided right now that if you had a Republican candidate who was like, you know, we messed up in a bunch of ways, we're mostly pretty good, I think that there would be a big middle lane. It would diffuse some of this anger. The American right at present, Merrill argued, was in need of guidance and leadership that did not come from the traditional establishment, which voters had rejected. There is a movement out there that isn't the Republican Party, that needs people to speak for and sort of shape the message, he said. In the past, that had meant movement conservatives cordoning off the undemocratic, un-American elements of the far right. Claremont could have filled that role, he argued, but the central challenge facing the right is, can someone take those themes and articulate them in a grown-up way? Some of Claremont have expressed a desire to work with liberals, yet their strategy seems to suggest the opposite. When I asked Williams what Claremont's ideal future would look like, he cited the deconstruction of the administrative state. He told me recently that the June Supreme Court ruling constraining the EPA is a step in the right direction. I agree. And he would like to see Congress get back to the act of legislating. I disagree. (laughs) Even though I agree that Congress is not doing its job, Congress doesn't need to legislate on a whole bunch of stuff. Instead of delegating rulemaking to bureaucracy, a long term and complicated process involving legislators learning rules that they hadn't used in 30 years. Again, the bureaucratic state is a problem. I agree with him, but I would like Congress to legislate less and just not legislate at all. Leave these things up to the states, the real American conservatism. Prudency added dictated that change should be incremental. Though I can anticipate your next question, which is, you guys talk like counter-revolutionaries, William said. One of the goals of the more polemical stuff is to wake up our fellow conservatives. (laughs) Klingenstein took a starker view. If it's true that the country is as divided as we think it is, and the situation is as dire, he said, it's very important for conservatives to understand this. Because if you're actually in a war, even if it's a Cold War, you behave differently. You're less inclined to compromise. You're more aggressive. In war, you don't negotiate until you've won. And this is something that Anton pointed out and responded to me. Why are we in this foxhole? We, we, we have to fight the enemy first. Then we can battle it out over who's going to win the ideological background of America. Who's going who's to be the real American conservative, Lincoln or, or Calhoun? In some ways, I get it, right? I mean, there's people I speak to all the time like this. You know, Paul Gottfried is one of them. Um, we got we to beat the left first. But my point is, if you're if you're beating the left on false terms, which would be uh, you're beating the left based on the Proposition Nation, you're really not beating the left. You're simply just beating a faction of the left and inaugurating a different faction of the left. You're not really winning. You're still losing. So you got to get the thing right. If you start from false premises, you can never get the thing right in the end. All right. So that was my response to this particular piece. Again, it's a long piece. Uh, you know, it would take me over an hour to read it. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McLean Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.